0: Okay, so welcome back to the second part of our series called Entheos, Re-engaging the True God Within. We looked last week at the fact that our period of disruption over the last couple of years has accentuated two primary paths in believers everywhere, that of the seeker and that of the sleeper. And there's an added dynamic on our path when we start to pursue the path of the seeker. It's the disruption of the enemy, our enemy, the evil one. And Jesus once used uh, talking about this, the allegory of two paths in Matthew 7, 13 to 14. He talked about the fact that there's two paths. One's wide and, and has uh, no enemy or no barrier on it. It's wide, it's smooth, it's easy. And it's the path of the sleeper. But the other path is narrow. It's a path of the seeker and it has a narrow gate. And, and he extrapolates that he is the gate and he is the shepherd and how he loves his people in that space. But then in John chapter 10, he talks about himself as that gate, but then he adds a stark truth. He says in John 10 verse nine, I'm the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Then he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so this thief comes on the narrow road, looking to stop or divert. He doesn't so much appear on the wide one. He's not needed there. He doesn't really concern himself with the sleepers. It's the seekers that worries the devil. And so his goal for people like you and I is death. It always has been death being essentially separation from God, physically, spiritually, and so on. Whereas Jesus goal is the diametric opposite. It's life, which is union, close union with Christ. Now, the devil has many weapons and he uses them often. You'll know many of them in your day-to-day life. Distraction, deceit, temptation. They all uh, people experience these things. But a common tool, particularly against the seekers, is a very powerful tool. And this is distortion. Distortion of our view of God. See, if you believe something false about me or someone else or anyone else uh, about their motives, you will hesitate to engage with them. It will alter the way you see them. It will alter your thoughts about them, alter your intimacy and alter what you expect of that relationship. See, the reality is seekers who are on that path ask questions and not all questions are easily answered. And we can easily get into this position where what we don't understand can rob us of what we do understand. And so he will take advantage of this. Questions that we all ask like, what is God really like? is he angry is he inconsistent is he demanding is he judgmental because sometimes we by the way we look at him and the and the, the almost like the slander and the distorted views we have would infer that what about the creation narrative how does that make sense against modern science what about ethics and morality and why doesn't god stop evil all these things and we can't accept that, the lack of understand, that lack of understanding that comes. And so we attempted down this diverted path. And there's a few ways that this diverted path can go. There are three main ways that we can get ourselves off track through this distorted view that we have of God. The first one is rejection. And people will often do this. They may start down the seeking path and the questions that they inevitably ask that are on that path because it's a seeker's path. Sometimes we can't accept the worldview and the apologetic of the cross and Christ and and a God who somehow, even though he's Lord of all and pure and good, can allow evil. All these sorts of things can disrupt the Western soul, particularly which needs understanding to find peace. And so if we can't find that understanding and we lose that peace, often we will actually get to the point where we reject the whole paradigm, the whole worldview, and even the reality of God. you will have heard the term deconstructed. So many uh, Christian leaders in recent years have deconstructed what they've essentially done, started out as seekers, but then come across uh, barriers that they couldn't understand. And so they have rejected, essentially, the truth of the worldview of the Christian life. So disappointment with our picture of God can force us to deconstruct, we feel. We require God to be the one we understand or as explained. So that's one path, rejection. The second one Uh, is rebellion. Rebellion. In fact, knowing that God exists and yet going the other way anyway. Because there's a sense in many believers when we see this uh, moral and ethical worldview of scripture, we realize straight away we can't live up to it. And so in in the futility of that, many will cease to try. And we might feel like we're unacceptable. We're not the churchy type and unable even to give over Um, we can't stop giving over to our sin. We know it's not the right way, but it seems our only way. And so people who suffer from that shame-based mindset will often feel themselves uh, compulsively leading into a a lifestyle of rebellion because they've given up hope. They just feel like they can't live up to it. That's the second path. The third diverting path is that of religion. And this is a real mystery. This is uh, the most subtle diversion of all. And the religious mindset says, uh, God is good, God is pure, which is true, and we can't be too close to Him because we too, we feel too ashamed, we're too aware of our sin. And so we're happy to try harder, and we'll try all we can to earn the favor of God as some form of a reward, uh, because we feel if we've just been good enough today, maybe we deserve access when we come to our quiet times or whatever, because we've been good enough to get through. But this is a religious mindset, it's cause and effect, it's, it's earning the right to be in God's presence. And these three paths, form diversions off the path that started so well. And so the evil one comes to steal, kill and destroy. And these are three of the very common uh, sidetracks drifting that can come before us. So Jesus actually addressed these sidetracks in an obscure way, but but very much relating to this dynamic in the parable of the prodigal son and his brother. If you'll remember the story uh, Jesus told, one brother obviously rebelled. He went down that sidetrack of rebellion, but eventually he understood grace and and came back. And it's a fantastic story of redemption and a father running to meet his son. But the other son, the older brother, was religious. He went down that other path of religion. He felt that he would deserved favor and was bitter at his sinful brother. The irony of that whole story was that the uh, religious son, the one who felt like he'd earned the right, to uh, have the rewards of the father was the one who couldn't go in. The rebellious son came home, uh, but the religious one did not. The great writer and author uh, Timothy Keller said in his book, The Prodigal God, uh, about this story, that if we, like the elder brother, seek to control God through our obedience, then all your morality is just a way to use God to make him give you the things on life that you really want careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. So we can see that so many of our perceptions and our responses to who we think God is can bring a horrible result. And the result of that is that we become judgmental people who hate or isolate from sinners whilst being ashamed of ourselves inside. We might become defeated people who know God is real but live like he's not. Or we may become disappointed people Uh, who prefer to just walk away from God and the church lifestyle completely. Okay, all that to say, if you want to know who God really is and uh, avoid those three pathways, we need to see him clearly. And to see God clearly, you can only look at Jesus. The only way to know who God is, what God's like, to answer as many questions as possible, is to look through the lens of Jesus Christ himself. To the one who wonders what God is like, Jesus says in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And we might reply, well, what about the law in the Old Testament? Isn't that what God is like? Doesn't that give us a picture? But that's a bit like listening to a crackly 1920s Italian radio broadcast in another, another language. And you think you know what the announcer looks like by that crackly voice you're hearing through a radio but you're only getting a part of the story. You can't see the nuance of facial expression. You can't see how they look. and You can't even understand what they're saying. And it's the same in many ways in the Old Testament as we read it from a New Testament and Western context. It was written to a different context. It was written in a different culture. It was written under a different covenant. And so if we want to get a picture of God, we need, to, we need more than what we see and read and try to understand him from the Old Testament alone. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 says of this, that in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, who he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the exact radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. However, how you look at Jesus so even if he's face to face with you, the way you look at him, the lenses through which you view him will determine how far you go in your relationship with him. Even when he's present right next to you, we can still get it wrong. Progress in our life, progress in our experience of God will eventually halt at the limits of our perception of Jesus. That's a key point. Progress in your walk, progress in your experience of God, what you, how you partner with his spirit and walk with him will eventually halt at the limits of your perception of who he is. For example, this week in our devotions, we saw that uh, Saul, who was soon to become Paul, uh, we looked at him and and we saw that he was on a path, certainly determined by who he saw both God and Jesus to be. He saw God as almighty and, and the working of that he was defending his systems, a Hebrew religion, the temple, all that kind of thing. He looked at Jesus as an embarrassment. Not as the Messiah, he looked at Jesus as, a, as a, an upstart, rebellious rabbi who died the most scornful death he could die. Complete contempt for him. But look at what happened when his view of who Jesus was changed in Acts chapter 9, 3 to 5. Let's read it. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, on his way to persecute the church, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And here's the big question. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Who are you? I thought I, know, I knew who God was. Who are you? The reply came, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. There's that big question, isn't it? Who are you, Lord? Who, who do we perceive him to be? He thought he had it right, but he's just met Jesus face to face and he has to ask the question, who are you? Because he had no clue who he was and it completely altered the trajectory of his life. He thought Jesus was just a pathetic revolutionary. He'd built an entire worldview are based on half truths and his own agendas and it all fell apart in this moment like a house of cards when he saw the truth it's a fork in the road that we all need but what about people like us we're not like saul are we we've, we've got for some of us decades of history with the bible and understanding christian life and so on well who could be a better example for us than his disciples they they bought into the whole deal as well and they were with him face to face for three years We tend to think sometimes well we know better than than when Saul. we you know we listen and we we're taught week after week but our experience of jesus is often not what the bible describes as correct we've been taught a lot but perhaps we've made god jesus in our own image you know i've got a long history in the baptist church but i know there's a baptist version of jesus he's always very intellectual well thought always quotes the greek and always gets his theology just right There's a Pentecostal Jesus who's who's a warrior looking for a fight and a demon to to conquer. There's the Anglican Jesus who's always politically correct and speaks with a slight English accent. We all have our different views of how Jesus talks and what he thinks and what he prioritizes. We tend to unfortunately make him in our own image. But our ability to experience Jesus will be capped by our level of accurate understanding of him. See, I've been in a room many times where I've stood and watched people side by side. One experienced an incredible thing with God, one didn't. In the same room where the power of the Holy Spirit's been present, one is healed and transformed in a moment. The other stood there like stone, experiencing nothing. I've received miraculous healings without ever asking or thinking to, while others I know have been desperate for healing and haven't received it. I've heard people earnestly ask God to reveal himself uh, and never have it seem to happen in their life while others see without even asking. See, it's like the disciples too. You know, there was a time when Jesus was in the boat and they're on the lake and the the wind was roaring and the seas are up, the whole thing. And you'll, You'll probably remember the picture from the Gospel of Mark where Jesus somehow in that situation managed to sleep. And they were right there with him. They couldn't understand him. They couldn't understand what was going on, let alone what happened next. In Mark 4 verse 40 it says, He said to his disciples after he'd calmed the storm, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they're probably thinking to themselves, we've got lots of faith, Uh, but we didn't know we were supposed to have faith that you could sleep through a storm or faith that you could uh, uh, overcome the thing. It goes on to say they were terrified and asked each other this same question that Saul asked. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So there's a big question they asked, and we probably need to ask as well. Who are you, Lord? Who is this King of glory? They'd had the real Jesus before them, but still couldn't see him. So what hope have we got? You know, we need to do the work too. We can't put ourselves above them. They were constrained by their teachings that they'd received previously about who the Messiah was going to be, their biases and their expectations. So who is this real Jesus? Who is he? Well, it's the true God within the Holy Spirit within us is the spirit of Jesus. But is it the real spirit of Jesus that you experience? Have you experienced him in all his fullness and power and peace and joy? He promises the whole deal, abundant life, rivers of living water. Have you experienced that? But let's dig in there now. But before we look at his words about who he says he is and his actions, let's consider where those words and actions come from. Uh, Let's consider the heart behind each of those. We need to look at what motivated and pushed Jesus forward to pursue what he pursued. Because when we read the stories in the Gospels, we're reading first century Palestine, uh, Hebrew setting, all that kind of thing. We're in 21st century Australia, a Western culture. So let's look at the heart of it. And the the first part of that heart is the fact that Jesus, if you look at what drove him, what pushed him, what was his values in his heart, that, that primary driver was that he longed for our reconciled union with the Father. It's why he died for us. What else could he do to to make that possible? What higher price could he pay? It was the single most important thing to Jesus, our reconciled union with God. It's what he prayed for most earnestly. On the last night of his life, uh, before he was crucified in John 17 verse 20, we, we see the priority where it comes out in his prayer. It says, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He's praying for unity. And we think this is just about being one together, ourselves, but he's talking about a grander concept. He's talking about us being one with him. And it goes on to say, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you've given me, that they they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. See, complete unity in the church is not just Christian people being of one mind. Complete unity has to include the Holy Spirit. It has to include that he is in us and we are in in him. And so it's a relationship of reliance. And that's the dynamic. This union is reliant on reliance, faith in him. Because all relationships are based on something. There's some form of agreement in there. There's some form of dynamic. Some are based in affection. Uh, we base our relations because we just feel like we just we love somebody or we, we just feel drawn to them. But when those feelings go, so is the relationship. Some relationships are based in agreement. In other words, there are people who have come together based on a very clear set of common beliefs. Uh, but that's a relationship, again, that's limited because when we disagree, we part. We've given ourselves permission to disengage because we no longer agree with everything together. Some relationships are based in Closeness, proximity, Uh, and everyone gets on fine and it's all going swimmingly. Uh, But when someone moves away, the relationship ends because it was reliant on proximity. So distance ends it. So every relationship has a dynamic. The dynamic of our relationship with God is faith, reliance. That's why Jesus' mantra, this is the heart behind what he kept on saying. He would say that faith matters and, and this reliance matters. So the primary heart behind Jesus is Jesus that we need to get to know is the dynamic of faith and his desire for us to be one with him. So a question for you as you're watching this now online, how then based on the priority of that, do you describe your relationship with God? Is it sort of objectified? He's like is someone that you pray to, but there's no, no closeness. Is it occasional? Is it vibrant? Is it continual? Is it a relationship that's just taken for granted? Is it close, as close as you would be with people that you meet face to face? Another element of that question is, was your relationship with your dad the same as your relationship that you have with God now? Because often these things are connected. Can you see any similarity between your intimacy levels with your own father, your sense of love and acceptance and trust as the same as what you have with God? There could be a connection there. All these sorts of questions, uh, matter and, and uh, in the discussion questions that follow this clip, there'll be a chance for you to go through that. So, what do you do in a situation where intimacy and reliance and faith in God is really heightened? What happens to you, for example, in a church service, in a worship time when the music's going? Uh, what's your response to that? But that, that's often a trigger of how our relationship is sitting, our intimacy level. You in know, how hard are we saying, get this thing over quickly, please? Or why don't they sing hymns that I like? Uh, If our minds distracted, sometimes that's a good indicator of what's happening there. So how is your relationship with God? Well, how's the intimacy level in your life going? Okay, let's move on from that. The questions and the handouts will uh, help you with that. The second big priority, the second heart value of this Jesus that we need to see clearly, to see accurately, is that he prioritized a walk of responding to God through purposeful intimacy. He prioritized a walk of responding through purposeful intimacy, his directions and his tasks weren't determined by the crowd or the culture. This is really important. This was an incredibly big value to him. See, we're seeing an iconic moment when he uh, could choose upon his walk in his ministry, success or purpose. What was going to drive him? What was most important to him? It was a moment when he was on a real roll. You know, there was, there was miracles happening daily. People were queuing up outside whatever house he was in. Twitter was trending, the hospitals were emptying and it was all going swimmingly. But you see this incredible insight into this Jesus and the heart of him that we need to know if we're going to align with him well. It's in Mark 1 verse 35 to 38. And it just says that very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where we prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, but when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. You can easily browse over this moment, but it's deeply significant as to what's important to God and therefore what he's wanting most to bring forth into your life. See, our purpose is often driven by success and things that go right, as signs that that we're on the right track. But Jesus wasn't driven by any of that, and he wasn't driven by the urgent. They're saying, look, everyone's looking for you. The cues were coming up. The crowd is here. This is your moment. Momentum's on your side. Keep going. But he wasn't impressed by those sorts of things, by big crowds and so on. He didn't follow the advice of the day. Peter came up to him brazenly one day and said, far be it from you to go to the cross, Jesus. You know, but he, did, he just pushed all that sort of stuff aside because he had one agenda that, he, that was driven by purposeful following of his father. See, intimacy with God was more important to him than sleep. He didn't really care so much about what numbers were outside. He needed to know he was on the right track and doing what his father is doing. And from that relationship, that's where he found direction and purpose. Therefore, Jesus would often say things like, follow me. Why did he say, follow me? It was, it was cultural, sure. But that's what he was doing. He was following the Father. So he would brazenly say things like, "You know, leave your nets or stop collecting taxes, sell all you have. Don't concern with anyone or anything or any number or any wealth or any possession. I'm asking you to do what I do and just follow, just follow. It was a huge priority. He demonstrated it all the time and he would say things like, I only do what I see the Father doing. He promised the benefits of that lifestyle too, if we were to take that up. He says, you're gonna do greater things than I've done. How many of us have seen that? I think it might be because we haven't dedicated our life to following in the same way that Jesus demonstrated. But this is why Jesus' mantra was to follow. Responding really mattered. So when was the last time you followed? You, You heard his whisper and said, I'm going a different direction because God's leading you that way. Are you too busy in the mornings or through the day and you just can't hear God's inside voice? Or have you seen the opposite where you have followed him just in those instant moments and seen someone come alive, seeing great fruit come? That is the Christian life. That, the priority of that compared to the priority we place on it is such a stark contrast. You see, God's spirit empowers his will. And how do you know his will? By, by listening and following. An empowered life. If you want to see the power of God in your life, It comes from following. Faith is first, following is second. Number three, what were the big values that drove what he wants to do in your life, demonstrated by what happened in his his own life? Here's the third one. He promised what we need, abundant life and freedom. See, Jesus' agenda for your life, my life, is abundant life. He prioritized and promised what we really need, abundant life. See, he wasn't driven to enforce impossible mountains of rules. He didn't come to judge those caught in obviously wrong lives. He didn't focus on what was wrong, but what could be right in our life. He called out the gold hidden deep in each of us and offered the power for it to come to life. He offered life and he gave us the Holy Spirit within to make that life possible. John 10:10 10, 10, again, I've come that you may have life, life to the full. John 7:37: let anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. He wanted you to drink. He wanted you to experience life. And it's accessed through the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 5 to 6 says that those who live according to the flesh, that is the non-spirit life, have their mind set on what that flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. What do you want? Is it what Jesus wants? He doesn't want you to live in a life that that leads you towards death. He wants you to have abundant life. And so when Jesus would constantly call for repentance, it was an understanding that I'm, I'm calling you out of death and into life. And that repentance was always coupled with faith, a reliance on his spirit to make it possible. Okay, there are the three big things, but notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, try harder, you filthy sinners. Uh, he didn't say, form a group of like minded people and create a denomination. He didn't say, start a holy crusade and an inquisition and fight for my name that way. Uh, he didn't say, if any one of you is a sinner, you don't belong in, in my church. He didn't focus on those sorts of things. He didn't focus on separation of people or on their performance. Jesus prioritized a walk with God and each other all right let's land this and and see where it works in your life we're talking about re-engaging this god within that's what this series is all about this jesus that i've described these priorities of of union with him freedom all and following is the power that jesus makes available in you that's his priority in your life john 14 16 to 18 says the father will give you another advocate key word there another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I'll come to you. Another advocate, let's pull that apart for just a moment. Another in the Greek means one of like kind. In other words, he's, I'm sending you one just like me. In fact, it's going to be me living within you. If you haven't experienced all the miracles and the peace and the guidance promised and demonstrated, Uh, and commanded of us. If you haven't experienced it, you can if you see Jesus as He really is. You say, that's the life He wants me. If you don't believe in that life, if you don't rely on Him giving you that type of life, then you won't be living that life. But you can if you rely on who He really is. You can if your priorities are the Spirit's priorities. Reliance on God, faith. Responding to God, following. Repenting and finding freedom. So I wonder what lenses you have today that you look through when you see Jesus. How do you see Jesus? Do you see him as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, or do you see him as a warrior? Do you see him as one who brings freedom and power into your life? What do you expect of him? What do you expect him to bring through your life? Well, we've just seen what he wants to bring. How do you see your purpose? Well, read the gospels. That's my, uh, not a command, it's my, dream for all of us that this week we would begin to bury ourselves in the Gospels to rediscover the real Jesus. So let me pray for you now as we close this off that you would indeed this week see the real Jesus. Father I pray for each one who's watching. Lord I pray as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 that you would open the eyes of their heart, that you'd give them divine revelation. They would see clearly who you are, see clearly your desire for their life, see clearly the power available to bring life, to bring freedom, to bring following and purpose into their life. Will you remove the lenses that distort our view of you so we can see you clearly face to face, access brought through the power of the blood of Jesus on the cross so that we can live the life you promised and expected us to be living. Where we do greater things than they saw you do. Father, bless your people and give them that revelation today in Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, join us soon for the discussion clip you can find on the website at n-theos.com.au and we'll apply these things even further. See you for now.